reading this and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. Unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I besought thee to advise to the Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest chant some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions, rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart, and of a good conscience, and of faith unfeigned, from which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say, nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long-suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honour and glory for ever and ever. Amen. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. Of is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And as ever we trust that the Lord will his own special blessing to the reading of his infallible word. Amen. Amen. Well, this evening we're continuing 
studying the first letter of Paul to Timothy. God willing, it's my intention that we shall also study 2 Timothy and Titus in due course. And these three epistles are often referred to as the pastoral epistles. And this might be because not only they are all addressed to some early Christian pastors, but also because they give us guidance as to both the qualifications and the responsibilities of pastors, those who lead God's churches. Both Timothy and Titus were Paul's sons in the faith, and both of them had pastoral responsibility. And we know that Paul wrote to them with the intention of helping them to ensure that what took place in the churches for which they were responsible would be right and pleasing in God's sight. And in our studies, we will see the practical information conveyed by these epistles on a variety of subjects. In our study last month, we reacquainted ourselves with Timothy, and we saw then that Paul trusted Timothy as much as he trusted any man. He had confidence in him, in the Lord. And we saw that Paul's first epistle to him was written with the aim of helping him to maintain order in the churches, to continue to refute Paul's teaching, to carry on from where Paul had left off. Paul and Timothy had been together at Ephesus before left him behind when he went to Macedonia. Paul had begun the necessary task of identifying and expelling from the church such as were guilty of false teaching. Timothy needed to continue that which Paul had begun and to oppose those who opposed the true gospel, to charge them that they should teach only that which was true doctrine. We saw in our last study that some commentators feel that false teachers had arisen from within the church. They might even have been elders, else how otherwise would they have been able to exert so much influence over those in the church? We know that Paul had warned the Ephesian elders on an earlier occasion that once he was no longer with them, there would be those who would infiltrate the church from without, but also those who would arise from within to lead people astray. We saw, did we not, that this has been true throughout history. Christian cults have invariably begun with someone in an orthodox church perverting the true gospel and attracting followers from within the true church to join with them in their apostasy. Overseers of God's people must ever be on their guard against false teaching. God holds them responsible. But you know, it's not just overseers who are to be on their guard. Since we know, do we not, that overseers themselves can be responsible for the introduction of false doctrine. All God's people share in the responsibility of watching out for any departure from the true gospel. We saw that there were spurious writings circulating in Ephesus at the time leading to the propagation of faces. Also, that there was much debate on genealogical issues. These things led to pointless discussion, vain jangling. What was required 
was sound teaching that edified and engendered charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith and pain. And we also saw in our last study that the law, the law of God is good and it's holy and it served to condemn evildoers, but also that it was designed primarily to highlight man's sinfulness and his utter inability to live up to God's standards. Once people have been saved, they then become dead to the law. And there's very little profit in ongoing debate about shades of legal meaning. We concluded our last study by considering how God had given Paul a commission. That the glorious gospel of the blessed God had been committed to his trust. And in this evening's study we shall be considering the remainder of 1 Timothy 1 and we shall further consider Paul's call to the ministry in verses 12 to 17. We shall also see how Paul continues his charge to Timothy in verses 18 to 20 and see that the gospel of God's grace had been committed to Timothy's trust as well as to Paul's. Well, it should always be a delight for any preacher of God's word to draw a congregation's attention to the grace of God. Mm. Grace of God. And we shall see this evening several aspects of God's grace as we consider Paul's own account of God's dealings with him. Paul was what we might say, what we might call a trophy of grace. A living testimony of how God could change the hearts of those who had once opposed him, those who had been formerly enemies of the gospel. Firstly, Paul adds this, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. And this brings to our attention, does it not, the source of grace. The source of grace, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in John 1 verse 17 that the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Romans 3 verse 24 tells us that believers are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul knew that he owed a great debt to the Lord Jesus, who had not only saved him, but had also fitted him for the ministry. Christ had enabled Paul. He had given him the strength to do that to which he had been appointed. We see Christ had considered Paul faithful, trustworthy. What an amazing turnaround when we consider Paul's background. He who had once been a persecutor of God's people, was now entrusted with their spiritual welfare. Paul said that Christ had put him into the ministry. And this is the only way for someone to enter the ministry is not to be put there by Christ. There are many men and women who are at this very moment purporting to minister God's word who have never been put into the ministry by Christ. They have put themselves into the ministry and are occupying positions to which they cannot have been truly called. 
And all those false teachers at Ephesus had never been appointed by Christ. They were self-appointed. And their ministry was contrary to the gospel of God's grace. Now the next aspect of grace which Paul brings to our attention is our need for grace. Our need for grace. Paul recounts how he was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. He was a blasphemer in as much as he had taken Christ's name in vain. And we know from Acts 26 and verse 11 that he had once tried to force Christians to blaspheme. He said this to King Agrippa. He said how he had punished them off in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Such was Paul's reputation as a persecutor of God's people that it was no surprise, was it, that Ananias and the other disciples were at first hesitant to accept him into their midst after his conversion. Paul had need of grace, as do we all. Or have we not all sinned and come forth of the glory of God? Now, we may not consider that we have sinned in the same manner that Paul sinned in his old life as Saul of Tarsus. We may not consider that we are as sinful as some notorious characters in history, but we need to understand that all men and women are sinners. It's only a question of the degree of our sin, the depth of our sin. We know that just one sin is enough to render us unacceptable in God's holy presence. And when we consider our accumulated sins, the sins of days and years and months, the sins of a lifetime, we should have no doubt but that God cannot allow us into his presence in our natural state. Our sins need to be dealt with if we are to get right with God. And the only way of getting right with God is through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be crystal clear about that. The Lord Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. By me. Paul's neither grace was great, but the power of God's grace was greater. Paul wrote, But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. When Paul persecuted Christians, he was fully responsible for all of his actions, for all that he did, just as those of Christ's crucifixion were all fully responsible for their actions. Now the Lord Jesus asked his Father to forgive those who knew not what they did. And can we have any reason to doubt but that the Father granted his beloved Son his request? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Paul was what we might call a blind bigot when he persecuted the early church. He was an unbelieving and a hardened preacher who couldn't see that the Lord Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah, the promised one that he and others like him, other Jews like him, were awaiting. He really believed that he was serving God by seeking to eradicate Christians. He had a zeal, but not according to knowledge. And it wasn't sinning willfully against any line that he had received as some of them. 
When we speak of Paul not having received any light, it brings his conversion sharply into focus, does it not? For he certainly did receive light on the road to Damascus, such light as to blind him temporarily. And once he had been enlightened, he wasn't, as he later told King Agrippa, disobedient unto the heavenly vision. He was no longer ignorantly in unbelief. And we know that his behaviour changed radically from then onwards. The measure of grace, the measure of grace shown to Paul is seen in the expression he uses to describe the Lord's grace to him. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant. Exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. And we know that the Lord Jesus pointed out that those who have been forgiven much become, become such as love much. And Paul considered the Lord's grace to him to have been what he termed superabundant, since he saw himself, as we shall see, to be the chief of sinners. Accompanying the superabundant measure of grace given to him were faith and love, which are marks of true salvation. If conversation in Ephesus had been less about genialities, less about legal niceties, less about spurious writings, and more about faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. What a difference that place would have been. I mentioned in our last study the spurious writings which seem to have been circulating in Ephesus at the time. And this no doubt led to debates as to what could be considered authentic, authentic and what could not. And perhaps this was why next wrote these words. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am true. And the expression, this is a faithful saying, is unique to the pastoral epistles and it's found in them on five separate occasions. You find it here in 1 Timothy in, in uh, chapter 3 verse, but we find it in 1 Timothy here, in chapter 3 verse 1, in chapter 4 and verse 9. It's also found in 2 Timothy verse 11 and in Titus 3 verse 8. And Paul uses the expression to emphasize key truths that must be undisputed by all true believers. Here we see him setting down the purpose of grace, the salvation of sinners for whom a Saviour had been provided. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, we need to truly understand that our Saviour didn't come just to set mankind, a good example as some people believe, but he came to save his people from their sin. Mm -hmm. The doctrine of Christ coming into the world and of salvation by faith in him alone summarizes the gospel. And thus it is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. Now, I imagine that 1 Timothy 1 verse 15 has been used by many gospel preachers in the past and it wouldn't surprise us if the Lord had used that verse to draw sinners to himself with redeeming love. We might say it's the gospel in a nutshell, highlighting as it does our sin and our need of a saviour and the provision of a saviour. 
Paul considered himself to have been the chief of sinners, taking into account his previous persecution of Christ, inasmuch as he persecuted Christ's followers. And who's to say that he was wrong in taking that view of himself? We could argue that there have been many worse men in history, both before and after the Apostle Paul. But it was how Paul viewed himself that I believe is relevant here. Paul really did perceive himself to have been the chief of sinners. And you know, it wouldn't hurt us to perceive ourselves in the same way. If we saw ourselves as the chief of sinners, it might help us not to feel superior to others, both in our fellowships and elsewhere also. And surely how Paul saw himself gives the lie to the prevailing idea that self-esteem is so important. How much better to see ourselves as the chief of sinners, saved by grace alone. Paul was a trophy of God's grace, for he who had once laid waste the early church was used of God greatly in its expansion. As Paul told the Galatians, the churches in Judea had heard only this, that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith which once he destroyed, and they glorify God in me. And it was this dramatic change that enabled Paul to write this. Howbeit, for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long-suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. God in Christ had displayed long-suffering towards Paul. It would have been understandable if Paul had met with divine retribution because of his ill-treatment of God's people, but instead of this, he met with divine grace and mercy. Mm -hmm. And so Paul's persecution of believers was tolerated, as it were, by God until such time as it was his divine purpose to grant him, that is Paul, everlasting life and a new purpose in life. And if someone as opposed to Christ as Paul could be saved, no one is beyond God's grace. Mm -hmm. Now, we may know people who, in our opinion, are unlikely to be saved. But we need to ask ourselves, why, why do we think that way? Is it because we believe that they've heard the gospel many times but have persistently rejected it? Is it because we feel that they have committed such sins that cannot be forgiven? Or is it because they seem to be so set in their ways that we assume that nothing or no one can ever change them? Surely we should take the view that God can save whomsoever he will. Have there not been people who were saved after having heard and rejected the gospel many times? Have there not been those who have been soundly saved despite their having committed atrocious sins? Paul was living proof that no one is beyond the reach of the grace of a long-suffering God and Saviour. And Paul's response to God's grace is seen in the conclusion to his account of how he was called to the ministry. In what we might term a doxology, he wrote this, now unto the King, the Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only wise God, 
be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now it's only from the Bible that we get our true understanding of the attributes of God, either in records of his declarations to men, or in passages such as the one before us, where someone's description of God has been inspired by the Holy Spirit. Our God is an eternal God. He is without beginning and without end. Now apparently the Jews conceived there to be two ages, the here and now, and the age to come. And Paul was stated here that God was the God of both, of all eternity. He is immortal, ever-living, and never-dying, unlike mortal men and women. He is invisible, and he can be known only by those to whom he chooses to reveal himself. He is the only true God and thus the only wise God, all other gods being false and inanimate creations of sinful men. Because God is unlike us in so many ways, we may struggle to come to terms with the, the reality of his perfect attributes, but we know that he does deserve honour and glory from us forever and ever. These things are due because he is the triune God. And we also know from the Old Testament, Isaiah 42 verse 8, that God will not share his glory. Isaiah recalls that God said this, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. So let us be careful to ensure that we always ascribe to our God the honour and the glory due to him. Now having completed the doxology, Paul proceeds to continue his charge to Timothy with these words. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. We see, do we not, that Paul refers to son Timothy, once again revealing that close spiritual relationship that bound the two of them. And he refers to certain prophecies which had been made at some time in the past in connection with Timothy's call to the ministry. If you turn to verse 14 of chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, you'll see there this exhortation. That's verse 14 of chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. We'll consider that verse in greater detail when we arrive at chapter 4, but in the meantime we can know that there were men in the New Testament church who were gifted to prophesy, men to whom God revealed his will regarding the direction to be taken by the churches, including his will as to those who were to be called to the ministry and what were to be their gifts. And so we can see that Paul's charge to Timothy to war a good warfare was in line with what had already been foretold about him by other men of God. Timothy had been entrusted with a commission, and the original Greek word, which is paratithomai, has the sense of committing something of value to someone else 
just as you might deposit some jewels in a safety deposit box in a bank vault. Timothy had been entrusted, we might say, with the jewels of the true gospel. And he would be required to defend that gospel against all who might seek to pervert it. Thus he would be engaged in a spiritual battle, being required to war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Now we know that Satan is a defeated enemy. We know that his judgment is foretold in the revelation of John, but until that time of final judgment, he seeks to war against the church of Christ. He will attack all believers, especially those who are in positions of leadership, since much more can be achieved where leaders succumb. If a member of a large church was to fall into gross sin, perhaps by committing adultery, then the church would suffer much damage. However, that damage would be even greater if it was the church leader who had succumbed to temptation. Similarly, if a church member was to fall into doctrinal error, it wouldn't have such a damaging effect as when a church leader falls into such error. And it seems that some of the Ephesian leaders had succumbed to doctrinal error. The church is thus being faced with the problems which we see Timothy here exhorted to conquer. Now, fighting the good fight is an expression which we might say has entered into our English vocabulary. Sometimes it's used in a non-spiritual context. As far as Timothy was concerned, it meant principally defending the true gospel against the attacks of the false teachers. And he was to do so by holding fast to the truth with which he had been entrusted. He was to hold or to keep the faith. This expression has also become part of our English vocabulary and ironically is often used by those in false religions such as Roman Catholicism. Maintaining a good conscience is something all believers should strive to do. And Paul knew that Timothy had needed purity of life as well as doctrinal purity. He needed a blameless conscience, one that didn't accuse him. You know, our consciences are warning devices given to us by God to monitor our behaviour. They can either accuse us or else excuse us. If we're behaving in a way that is acceptable to the Lord, then our conscience will help us to be at peace. But if we behave in a way that is displeasing to God, then we will feel guilty. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, when we come to it, we will see how false teachers have seared consciences, seared conscience, numbed or cauterized because of their continued wickedness. Timothy was charged to maintain faith and a good conscience towards God. But we know that there were those at Ephesus who had refused to do this. Paul wrote, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. Of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Teachers of error at Ephesus had rejected the principles of true faith and good conscience and could be viewed as us having suffered shipwreck in relation to true faith. 
And this question arises, were those particular people lost forever, or was there any possibility that they could, at some time in the future, be rescued? Paul said that he delivered two men unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And we need to consider what it means for someone to be delivered to Satan, and why this was done. Those two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, were men who had both been found guilty of false teaching and thus were put out of the church. They had been excommunicated. Thus they were delivered unto Satan, meaning that they no longer benefited from being part of a believing community, from the insulation and protection found there. And they were released, as it were, into the custody and jurisdiction of Satan. Now, we have a comparable account of someone having been delivered to Satan by Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 and verses 1 to 5, which read thus. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present, concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And we can see clearly from this passage, coming on, that it was intended that that man guilty of fornication with his father's wife was to suffer in the flesh, mm. but not eternal damnation. It's also inferred in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians that that person who had been excommunicated may eventually have been received back into the church at Corinth. Thus could we not say that the purpose of putting someone out of the church, of delivering them unto Satan, is that they might learn the error of their ways and then eventually be reoriented to the fellowship. Hymenaeus and Alexander needed to learn that their blasphemy wouldn't be tolerated. They needed to repent with godly sorrow if they were ever to be received back into the church. Now, it has to be made clear that not everyone who is delivered to Satan by being excommunicated is eventually restored. If you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to come to that in some months' time. 2 Timothy 2, verses 17 to 18, you'll see Paul writing on Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. So it appears that Hymenaeus was apparently still unrepentant at that time, and we don't know if he was ever restored. However, we do know from history that there have been those who have been put out of the church and who subsequently never showed any signs of godly repentance. Is it possible for a real believer to remain unrepentant after having been excommunicated because of gross sin? Is it possible for someone to die 
and be received into heaven despite never having been restored to that fellowship from which they were ejected. You know, these are difficult questions for us to answer. However, this shouldn't ever dissuade a church from putting out of the church such as our guilty of gross sin. Well, we come to an end of our study of 1 Timothy this evening, and I trust that we've been encouraged as we've been reminded of the grace of God shown towards Paul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus, I should say. He was once an enemy of Christ, but he became the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest Christians, I might say, I believe, whoever thinks. And this should teach us never to believe that anyone is beyond the grace of God. Paul was put into the ministry by God. And this is the only way that anyone should ever enter the ministry, by being put there by God. And I trust that this evening we've again seen how important it is that false teaching and teachers should be opposed. And that we're not to shy away from putting out of the church any who are guilty of heresy or any other gross sin. Our hope is that anyone who is put out of the church would be restored, though this cannot be guaranteed. The important thing is that the church should remain pure in doctrine and behaviour. And I trust that this might ever be the case here in this fellowship. Amen. Amen.